Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Welcome to the second full episode of season three. And we're going to start by answering the question, why are indigenous land and territorial acknowledgements important? The teaching of U.S. history in schools, museums, and the media has left out many voices and difficult truths in order to create an idealized nationalistic identity. The displacement of indigenous peoples and the devastating effort that forced relocation has had on these communities has been largely hidden within the nationalistic narratives. While many indigenous nations have treaties with the United States government that designate land ownership, most only have rights to occupancy. Often the land on which indigenous nations and communities reside is not the land to which they have ancestral ties, as many have experienced dispossession and displacement through colonization. However, the connection to homelands has endured by means of multiple and ongoing indigenous strategies of resistance to settler colonialism. This connection is often central to cultural identity and worldview. The examples of Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline and the shrinking of the Bears Ears National Monument demonstrate that relationships of place and identity persist. The settler colonial state continues to struggle in the recognition of inherent indigenous sovereignty and respect to homelands. That was from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. You can find a link to the guide on our website. This is the second of the special episodes we recorded in partnership with Doc Leipzig for their 2021 festival. The conversation is entitled Jihan and Tony Talk Archives. I chat with filmmaker and archivist Jihan El Tari about the manifesto Liberate the Image, which was a call to action to make archives more accessible to content creators living in the global south. During the conversation, we discuss archival preservation of assets of those who are part of the global majority, who gets to monetize archives, and when does monetization make access to historical assets prohibitive? The role archivists play in the preservation of history and limitations due to limited staff, storage, capacity, and adequate facilities. Access to non-commercial archives such as museums, community organizations, and individuals. And lastly, licensing struggles across borders. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in September 2021. All right, so Jihan, I just like you to just, you've had uh, an amazing documentary career, um, also um, an amazing work around your advocacy and documentary, but I just want you to just, if you could give us a little preview of like what you do with DocBox um, for our US-based audiences who may not be familiar with that organization. Yeah, well, DocBox is an institution that supports um, trains and funds um, Arab and African filmmakers. And um, it started initially in 2014, actually came out of a film festival in Syria, and it was mainly angled around Arab filmmakers. And uh, when I was hired, I think uh, early 2019, I obviously, uh, being Egyptian and having uh, Arab slash Africa became um, the main theme, really, because I do believe that this um, this division within the continent that is completely artificial um, mm. is something that we should not perpetuate. So I guess that all the programs that came out of there kind of... Uh, 
underline this. So we have seven programs that are running. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of all mm -hmm. of them. They're found on our website on docsbox.org. <laughs> That's easy. What we are trying to do is fill in the gaps that most other um, labs and institutions do not look after. And these are mainly uh, gaps that filmmakers that are not assisted by major producers, major funding, find themselves totally at a loss. Uh, and so, for example, we have something like uh, called Doc's Garage, which is a garage. What is your problem? Identify it. And we will find the right mentor to accompany mm. you to try and fix it. We have something called the residency, which basically offers filmmakers up to 15 weeks of editing and post-production, mm. even if they don't have a producer, even if they don't have any money, but it's the ability to finish a film. And I think that comes very much out of on the continent, mm. there are a few top filmmakers who manage to break into the system and all the others are left stranded. So how can we accompany these voices that we feel are important voices that give the perspective of the South? How can we accompanying, uh, accompany them to the finish line? Now, after that, whether they break through or not isn't really what we're concerned about. And then we have a program called Women in Docs, which is six women from six countries doing a collective film from mm. idea to delivery. And we just today, this morning, sound mixed and graded the two films they did together. And it is a real delight. Last but certainly not least... Mm -hmm is our, our archive-based program, which is called People's Stories Past and Present. And I'll actually tell you the subtitle, which I think is really important. It's called Bridging the Silenced and Liminal Spaces of African Imagery. And that's an archive program that's going to run for two years. We chose two hubs, one being Morocco and the other being Senegal, uh, and the, this choice is again based to reconnect mm -hmm. the countries of North and South that have had histories together yes. since the 15th century. So we're going to definitely dive deep into the archival piece because that sounds amazing. Um, but I want to go back to a, a few things you said. So you mentioned the the false division between like North Africa, you know, North Africa and like I guess and the rest of the continent. Uh, the only North African country, actually only African country I've been to is Morocco. I went when I was in college, I was there for five months. It was amazing. But there is this division. So there's Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, which is and you know, etc., which is Considered like North Africa, and then there's and with North Africa, which is the Arab-speaking countries, so to speak, and then there's the rest of the continent. So, can you speak to more just about how that division happened, but also how it's continued to be perpetuated, particularly like in grant spaces, um, particularly in the 
in the global north because they're programs that are specifically for like Middle Eastern and North African filmmakers and then and, and the program is specifically for that folks for the rest of the continent. Yeah, I actually got obsessed with, with this question for a while and ended up writing uh, an article, I think it was for Art Africa, called mm-hmm. The Great Divide. And I, I got obsessed with this word sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really figure out um, where that came from. I mean, is it a colonial term, but you can't really find it in colonial literature? What is it? And you can't find that divide on the map. And I couldn't figure out why is Mauritania sub-Saharan Africa and it's in the north, yet Sudan is considered an Arab MENA country. Yet it's way down below the Sahara. So what is all this about? And so basically, um, I did a lot of research, and this is a very long story, so I'll try to be a bit Mm -hmm. concise about it. And basically, it comes from the mid-50s, 1956 to be specific, with the Suez crisis and Mm -hmm. the clarity of this is end of empire. And Mm. the U.S., realized that if it's end of empire, there are going to be like 50 countries popping up and we don't know anything about them. And so it was the U.S. foreign policy needed to adjust to this sudden expansion Mm -hmm. of new countries in the U.N. and they needed to formulate what would their policy be with each country. So They basically had this one big meeting where all the big foundations, Ford Foundation, Carnegie, Rockefeller, all these foundations sat around the table and they came up with the idea to create a discipline in all uh, American universities called area studies. Ah, And the way area studies was divided is based on American foreign policy rather than based on the previous colonial divisions. Mm. Uh, So MENA, which is Middle East, combines, for example, Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. And these are three completely different cultures, completely different histories, but they're only put in one block because that was the strategic interest of American foreign policy. And did this have something also to do with the um, the Cold War as well? Well, I guess the strategic interests of uh, the, the U.S. at that point in the 50s mm-hmm. was very connected to the Cold War. But mm-hmm. for example, what we call North Africa or the Maghreb, which yes. somehow excludes Libya, you mm-hmm. wonder why, um, mm-hmm. But it's based on U.S. relations with the French. Right, because those are all the, the French-speaking um, yes. African countries. Yeah. Yes. And anything below the Sahara was based on keep communism out. Right. So countries mm-hmm. where there wasn't a specific interest was mainly the Cold War reasoning was what was most important. Middle East Mm -hmm. was mainly based on strategic interest, be they geographical or be they uh, oil, for example. But what I would like to underline here is Mm -hmm. that up until the late 60s, this division was really not clear 
because Algeria, for example, was the hub, as, as Amilcar Cabral said, yes. was mm -hmm. the mecca of revolutionaries. So Egypt would provide the arms mm. and Algeria would provide the training for all liberation movements south of the continent. And that mm -hmm. went on to the late 60s, even to the early 70s. There's a rich history um, in that. And then, but we also still, like in the documentary space, still perpetuate some of these, these, these false categories. I think it, the, all these categories today are based on financing structures and based on border limitations. So for example, any application you write, you have to say which countries they are. Well, but these countries are the colonial borders. Right. So why do I have to divide between Mauritania and Senegal? It's mm -hmm. just because the colonial border is there. Our decision, at Docsbox was that we do not deal with colonial borders. We mm. deal with spaces of cultural harmony. When people are applying to participate in Docsbox in your various programs, what questions around identity do you ask in order to, well, even if it's just for the purposes of collecting demographics? We too are bound by, by financing. And so uh, some countries, some programs like Women in Docs, for example, um, are country specific every cycle, but then we play around with that if we want. The thing is that our choices are based on content. What do mm. you want to say? And all the rest is somehow manageable. I mean, I think that there's a long way to go before we completely break these formats right but at least there are things that we can do mm -hmm. where we do not need to abide by them so we do not ask specific identity questions unless it, the, the program itself is country specific, specific. Got it. Um, sometimes we accept these arbitrary categories and borders just because it's tradition, but we really don't understand like why we are doing these things. So it, it helps it helps to have some clarity on that. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is just the various, and again, this is primarily for our US um, audience, but the the various um, organizations that are out there, and I know there are a lot that focus on the needs of African filmmakers. Um, and I specifically wanted to ask about the Federation of Pan-African Cinema and a few other organizations which you're, you, you, you're on the board of. Well, I mean, I started really engaging with these institutions, I'd say around the mid-90s, because there was a very clear lack amongst African filmmakers, how and where do we get our voice heard? Mm -hmm. And the main issue was like, we don't want to just be part of the ghetto. How do we, mm -hmm. as a collective, get our voices heard and integrate that, you know, the, the world system? Why do we have right. to be out of the global system? Exactly. We have something to say, but... Um, most of the uh, festivals, most it's either it's an African festival. It's like the label African this and that meant that you really can only stick within that 
fear. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I think it was 1997 where we first um, started the Guild of African Filmmakers in the Diaspora. Mm-hmm. We um, met in uh, Fespaco, which is one of the oldest film festivals. Yeah. In this uh, running, yeah, yes, it's huge. Um, running, it's huge. Which mm-hmm. I'm going to actually in a couple of days. Uh, <laughs> I'm president <laughs> of the jury this year. I'm so oh, proud. Oh my goodness, go ahead. <laughs> After not missing a single edition since '95, I'm the president this yeah, year. You earned that perfect <laughs> attendance. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess that only vouches for my old age. But anyway, uh, and so we gathered and and basically we started looking at how do we come together and make our voices heard. So we created the guild. It had mm-hmm. its ups and downs, but what it did actually do in the first few years that it kind of revived what the FIPASI. Um, Mm -hmm. which is the Federation of Pan-African Cinema, had stopped doing for a while. Uh, And I'll get to the Federation of Pan-African Cinema in a a minute. We basically thumped our hands on the table and said, we have a space, we have a voice, and we need to be part of this conversation. So little by little, some of us were taken into selection committees, some of us Mm -hmm. were... uh, And and I think after a few years, that didn't even become the issue. The fact that we became visible as African filmmakers, people started looking into each individual work because we didn't particularly want to just be seen as the face of Africa, but Mm -hmm. how do you get that voice heard? So I think that was a very successful um, way of doing it. For years, we'd have our pavilion, uh, the South Pavilion in uh, in Cannes. And then out of that came the Africa Pavilion, which is now being run uh, separately. And then now mm-hmm. the Federation of Pan-African Cinema was created in the 60s. Basically, it is the space from which the Spaco and the... Um, the, the uh, Journée Cinématographique de Carthage, the Carthage Film Festival, mm-hmm. came out of. It was the meeting of the generation before us, mm, or the one okay. before that, sitting around and saying the same thing. We have to be able to show our work and tell our stories on our own terms. Yes. And we won't be able to do this unless we have our own spaces. And mm-hmm. so that's how... Um, why it's really important, the Federation, it's had, again, its ups and downs, why it's really important that it remains, it has an observer seat at the African Union. Right. So it's the only organization that can actually go to the the decision makers of the cultural sphere on the continent Mm -hmm. and tell them that is what we need. This is what we want to do and to Mm. do it internally rather than go north first and then translate it to the south. The institutions are really important, but I think no matter what we do, and maybe I'll be politically not very correct, but you know. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can do that. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't think anyone who knows me will be surprised, but anyway, uh, I think the fact that our own countries 
do mm-hmm. not provide us with the support or the money to do mm-hmm. what needs to be done in the cultural sector, we'll never get these institutions fully off the ground. So lots mm. of people try their best. Lots of people continue to work within these structures, but ultimately without the funding mm-hmm. properly, we'll always end up needing to do what the funding needs us to do at some point or the other. And, and essentially letting, um, in some ways, letting the funding dictate the, what the content will be. Maybe not. Maybe dictate is a bit too harsh. Okay. But but to to lead it in a way or the other. So another thing I want you to talk about. You mentioned um, before some of the gaps that were present, and particularly with your work with Docsbox and how that fills the gap. So what are some of the unique needs of filmmakers like on on the continent? Well, I mean, I'll tell you a very simple one. We started mm-hmm. this program called Trailer and Assembly mm-hmm. to be able to even apply to any forum, to any application, to right. any funding. What do they do? They ask you for a trailer. If you're a young African or Arab filmmaker who's just spent a year on their own time, their own money, their own everything to do a film, they desperately want to make and are convinced have spent every moment of their lives, every penny in their Mm -hmm. pocket to do it. Well, to do the trailer, you need an edit suite. You need an editor. You need the technical infrastructure that allows you to even cut it and present it in a form that will allow you to fill the application. So basically, one of the things we offer is uh, trailers, You know, Mm, mm -hmm. you need to cut a trailer to submit to something. Here you go. Two weeks of edit suite and an editor who will help you out. The assembly, for example, the assembly is because, again, of funding, you never really have the time to sit with your material and decide what is it I actually want to say, rather than just fit the structure and the criteria that will make the film the kind of film that will be sold. Mm -hmm. So we give four to five weeks, sit there, assemble your material. There's no pressure. Do whatever you want. Think, what is it you want to say? Do you have the material to say it or do you need to stop, go shoot again and come back? Mm -hmm. And these Mm -hmm. are spaces that do not exist. So it provides people the opportunity to really people. A lot of people don't realize how particularly when you're a newer filmmaker, so much of it is a solo endeavor. You're doing a lot of it of it on your own so you're basically providing the opportunity for filmmakers to get the support they need to get their work out into the world and like at at the various stages i'll give you a very good example for example with doc's garage one guy had spent four years making a film Mm. and the film is cut and everything and suddenly the main character in the film doesn't want to sign the release form he had no idea what to do about it the film had been blocked for two years and then he saw the dog's garage thing and he sent us i don't know if that's what the kind of thing you do and what he needed was a lawyer he didn't need Mm -hmm. a filmmaker he didn't need a mentor he needed a lawyer from the same space that his main character came from, she was Nubian. Mm-hmm. So we basically found a Nubian lawyer 
who mm. sat with the lady and basically she was too scared of her father. And so the oh. lawyer went to meet her father. Two days, the document was signed. It's not a train smash. It's not, I mean, right. getting things done are not just about the money. They're also mm-hmm. about what do you need? What do you need help with? We as filmmakers don't need to know everything. We don't need to be the best writers in the world. We're filmmakers. Mm-hmm. If you need to know who to ask. Film mm-hmm. And doesn't know how to write a treatment, maybe they need help for someone to write the treatment with them. I definitely have in- encountered that in my, my previous work where people were clearly, clearly passionate about their project, but they just really did not understand how to like articulate that, like and to write it down and even to pitch it. So all they really need is some teaching on that. Like this is how you put this and how, this is how you formalize this process. Yes, but even yeah. if they don't do it themselves, mm-hmm. they are filmmakers. They're not out there to become writers. And, right. and I think that's one of the things which is the main the backbone, I would say, with what we're trying to do. Maybe we won't be able to do it perfectly, but at least we're trying. The backbone is this profession of ours is not about ticking boxes. It's not about fitting into a format that has been set out there. This Mm -hmm. is a profession that is called documentary. It's trying to capture something. It's trying to say something. It's trying to reflect over something. And it's trying to transmit a voice. And Mm -hmm. ours is a voice of diversity. If you keep just ticking the boxes and fitting into the formats, our voice isn't there. You're going to miss a lot. And we'd just be trying to catch up. It's definitely more than a box. And I think that is, okay, my conversations with um, filmmakers from the Global South and when they talk about their interactions with the filmmaking communities in the Global North, a lot of times they feel like they're just a box that's being to it. Absolutely. And, And mind you, this whole moving on to digital Mm-hmm. is the biggest space of exclusion, although it is presented as one of inclusion. Okay, so speak more to that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, um, mm-hmm. as we talk now on Zoom, mm-hmm. a young African person who is working obviously most of the time off their cell phone rather than off their computer because they don't have a computer, they spend, let's say, $20 on their airtime and credit for the month. If you Mm. get on a Zoom, that money is gone within three minutes. That eats it all up. Within Mm. within their country, they'll never have a stable connection. And so Mm -hmm. they're invited and they're they're bumped off or they're muted or they're this or they're that. It's a space that gives us the impression that we could all be part of it. The Mm -hmm. worst part is language. Most of everything is now happening in English. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people who used to go to film festivals and when you're face to face with someone, you get yourself known, you get the feeling for the person, you learn by osmosis, you do hand signs. Right. But in, on a Zoom, if you do not perfect the language, you're out. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. And you actually, particularly those of us who are producing these events on the tech side, we have to be definitely be more mindful and more conscientious of that because I actually participated in the panel for the um, Caribbean um, Film Academy and it was all on Zoom. We had, I think they had people translating in, I wanna say like five different languages. So in French, Haitian Creole, English, Spanish, and like a few more. And so people, when they turned into Zoom could actually switch to those various channels. Um, so it, that provided more accessibility in that regard. But another thing I wanted to bring up too is for Getting Real 2020, um, Riddell and I helped to organize this convening of global indigenous filmmakers. And we had moderators that we were working with, um, but also we, we set out a lot of questionnaires like throughout the global indigenous community just to see what some of the concerns were going to be. And one of the things they mentioned was uh, definitely the connectivity issue, being able to, um, if they did not have, you know, we, we sometimes we think everybody has Wi-Fi in their home, you know, we, we get, get on this delusion. A lot, most people don't. Like that is not the norm. So like just making sure people knew about the event ahead of time. So if they wanted to, and they needed to, if they wanted to participate to travel to where they could have like Wi-Fi, that, that was free. We were planning this in the midst of, you know, the, this during the midst of the pandemic, you know, and we're having to make everything virtual. So there was definitely a lot of growing pains, Yeah, but, but that's one thing that we had not thought of. We would not have known to think about if not for a week now that we've asked these questions. Like what are some of the things we're not thinking about? You know, no, but, but honestly, I do think that the virtual space does have its reasoning, but the extent of it and right. how you choose what is a much deeper conversation and mm -hmm. all the fights and achievements that have happened over the 20 years, let's say 30 past years, a group of us have mm -hmm. been convening and talking about this because um, I don't know if you've heard of the Black Audio Collective, for example. Mm -mm, um, no. Like John Acomfra, um, you know, uh, Kojo Ishun, David Lawson. Uh, th these were battles of the mid 80s where mm. we needed space to exist and the rest of us. And all of us were sitting there talking after like a few months of virtuality. And everybody was saying, can you believe how much we've lost in terms of the terrain we had gained. Anyway, mm -hmm. we could go on about this forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, uh, let's not do that. Yes. I think that the balance is there to be found. I think there's mm -hmm. no logic of traveling halfway across the continent or to go to do a keynote speech for one hour. Festivals becoming completely online, I think is an aberration. I would like to see some kind of ideally like festivals adopt like uh, some kind of hybrid model that they can that continue with. Yeah, that Absolutely. would be an ideal. Let's get into archives since that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Absolutely, my passion. <laughs> I got into documentary first as a PA and then that morphed into an archival research position. And I am a lover of history, like I love studying. And so it was kind of like a natural fit for me. 
And the first film I worked on was this project called um, Bridging the Divide, Tom Bradley and the Politics of Race, which was about Tom Bradley, who is the first African-American mayor of Los Angeles. And he was mayor for 20 years. And because he has such a long history, not only as mayor, but also as the, the civic work um, in LA, I had the opportunity to like dive into so many historical aspects of his, of his story. I think I probably visited every single archive in Los Angeles. So I visited university archives and I visited smaller ones and I visited museums and then I did like a lot of online searches, but it was really kind of my crash course in archival research. Archives, particularly in the U.S., are complicated. Sometimes uh, a, a film that's heavily archival based can be extremely expensive. And sometimes the purchase of the archive can be the majority of the budget, which for a lot of filmmakers can be prohibitive. Um, sometimes things aren't digitized, particularly those items that are like historical events having to do with Black and Indigenous people of color. They haven't been digitized. So uh, sometimes archival houses will put those expenses onto the filmmaker, even though they're making money from it. But there are, there are a lot of archives that are available in the, the public domain. So for example, I did this epic train trip across the country and I spent some time in DC and I actually went to the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress in the US is a, the People's Archive. And they have um, a lot of things available online that are public domain. You just have to, sometimes you may have to pay like a reproduction cost, but you don't have to pay any licensing fees. You just have to give the, the proper attribution. And it was really moving for me to kind of be in that space because they are doing more to ensure that the people's his the, the people as as a whole, you know, including folks of color, is being included in that. For example, they had an exhibit there of the civil rights activist um, Rosa Parks, and they had things like her tax returns. So they had her tax returns before the Montgomery bus boycott where she and her husband, I think they maybe made like $4,000 that year. And then a few years later when they made like 600, because you know, they've been cut off from sources of money and income because of the prejudice and discrimination against them. So for me, like archives can just add such a rich history. And, you know, these are like primary first person documents that we, we all should have access to that really help to tell the story of us, help us understand like who we were, but also like who we want to be. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with archives, just because these are, to me, they're like living histories in a way. Yeah. I mean, you know, you basically said everything that, that <laughs> needs to be said, because I mean, you've just like really nailed it, but we're coming from a different vantage point here yes um, yes let me start by saying how I started which was mm -hmm. like completely crazy I actually collected my first reel of archive when I was 15 okay I, I I'm a complete flea market buff and um I used to go to the flea markets and in Egypt they would the canisters was what they sold <gasps> And so, oh my goodness. and so they would empty the canister, throw away the reels and sell the canister. And basically I, I take the reels 
And I started making this giant reel, just connecting all the stuff I gathered together. Oh, okay. And, and I was only 15, really, so I didn't really know what all this was about. But I, I was always wondering, why is that box in which they're saving something so much more expensive? Why are people throwing away the thing that is supposed to be protected? Yes. <laughs> yes. So yes. it was like, I guess that was the first question, which obviously, I mean, I wasn't even anywhere near. To, so I've always had this connection. The minute I go to a flea market and I see film, I just buy mm -hmm. it. I bought film in India, bought film in, uh, I bought film everywhere. That's uh, awesome. And I just keep it. I mean, I don't know. One day, maybe my kids will know what to do with it, but. I, you know, and I remember when the first film I did that was archive based was towards the late 80s. People thought I was crazy. Like, really? oh, shoot. I'm talking in Europe. It's like it wasn't in vogue to do archive films. I mean, archive has become sexy. I always thought it was sexy, but I didn't realize it was not sexy. At no, some point. I didn't even need release forms for half of the stuff. I mean, this, oh, and it wow. was actually it wasn't called archive. It was called found found footage. The producer would say, "Are you sure you want to do this? Don't you want to just go shoot this, this, and that?" And I was like, "No, but this is really interesting because da, da, da. anyway." Mm. So, and in my own lifetime, I've gone through major shifts in archive policies. So, okay. I mean, something like. Reuters mm -hmm. and Viz News sell their entire archive, then suddenly all these new... So you, you've had the building of these major conglomerates yes. that have become controllers of our visuals. Yes. Okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, you spoke... I'm, I'm not going to repeat everything you said because you were completely on point, Access is obviously a problem, and I can mm -hmm. speak about this from here until tomorrow morning, but I think we need to take it beyond the issue of access. Okay. It's the, the, the issue of what do these archives actually hold, if you think of it. What that's filmed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the huge cameras, the cost of film reels, who sent these people out? to film what? And that for me is the most interesting aspect. The discrepancy between official history that was decided to be captured as opposed to memory, which we find in home videos, mm -hmm. every now and then a cameraman's own footage, yes. somebody's, and there is such and that's why our program is called Bridging the Gap Between the Silenced and Liminal Spaces. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there's a whole section of history that, right. as you said, Rosa Parks, for example, some things were deemed unimportant. Who that's decides right. what exactly. is important and what exactly. is not important? Mm -hmm. How can we, coming out of colonial structures mm -hmm. how can we see ourselves in these images when you know that the entire west africa for example mm -hmm. all french colonies 
until 1963, had something called the Laval Decree. Mm-hmm. The Laval Decree clearly and legally forbid any indigenous individuals to deal with their own image, to mm. use any, to capture their image, to, to do anything with the image. So right. basically what we are being handed down as our only imagery of ourselves was filmed through colonial eyes. Exactly, yeah. So we have such a huge task now. It is our history. We have nothing else to work for, Mm -hmm. uh, work with rather. So basically it's not about excluding this and saying, oh, this is the colonial uh, vantage point. We Mm -hmm. have a lot of work to use that footage and reinterpret it, interrogate Mm. it, critique it, and then be able to take ownership of it and to be able to tell our own stories through these images because we don't have any others. Even these images, Mm -hmm. for me to tell a story about me and my country and my family, I have to go to a British library and pay 4,000 euros a minute. A minute, yeah. Yeah, so that's where Mm -hmm. the question of restitution and right. what restitution means should be at the forefront of what we're talking about. Now, when I say restitution, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean give us back our footage. Why? Because from the moment the colonial um, uh, rulers left, nothing was done to even right. bring our societies or our infrastructures up to date. It was Bye. Bye. We destroyed your cultures. We destroyed your systems. Mm-hmm. Bye. Mm-hmm. Now show us how you're going to live up to it. I'm sorry. It's exactly right. like slavery, where the conversation is about restituting memory. It's also about mm-hmm. about reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been using and selling our footage for more than sixty years and earning four thousand euros a minute for yes. it. The least mm-hmm. you can do is train some of our people, maybe set up uh, there and give us copies of what is ours. Amen. Not saying give us the stuff and go away. Exactly. Same. Now, the conversation that's not the same, of course we can share. It's not about sharing. Mm-hmm. Give it to us to examine it. To examine it. Give us the space to think of it. Give us the space to find our own narrative Mm-hmm. And then we can share. You made so many like amazing, amazing points. So I want to kind of go back to the the restitution piece. I just need to add yes. that mm-hmm. when I talk restitution, right, reparations, all these things, this is not against the North. But for us to be able to talk right. to each other mm-hmm. on eye level, we have to be given the time and the space and the ability for both of us to see each other on eye mm-hmm. level, we can no longer continue to be looked at as, okay, some more assistance and then maybe they'll go away. No. Yes. We yeah, able this to live together, we have to con- converse mm-hmm. on the same level. If we are not given the time, the space and the means 
to do that, mm-hmm. this will never happen. So there have been a lot of stories. Well, I, I'm going to say pre-COVID, there were a lot of stories in the news about particularly like these European museums returning artifacts to, you know, to the global South. They haven't um, returned them yet. Oh, they, oh, so they just said the they conversation were. about needing to return them. Oh, I think okay. a couple of countries return. Yeah, it's been a conversation okay. which came out of a report called the SAR Savoir Report, which mm-hmm. was following SAR, uh, who's actually teaching um, in the US uh, uh, at the moment at Duke, and Benedict Savoir, who is a French researcher. And uh, uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, um, mm-hmm. uh, said, OK, well, do a report, <laughs> at thinking uh, that this will be a conversation. So much work had been done about that, that right. the report was this thick and mm-hmm. it was extremely specific. This is and it's the return of the icons. This object was taken from this place by that person at this place and was taken to this museum, sold to this person. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't belong to them. Right. Basically stolen objects. But just to return, this is a very huge conversation and is really wide. And luckily, a lot of people are engaging with it. But Mm -hmm. to get us back to the archive, within that report, there is a section that says, and that is what we at Docsbox sort of took as a springboard to what we did the manifesto that we wrote called Liberate the Image Manifesto. Within the source, uh, Sar Savoir report, there's a paragraph that said, the moving image is part of that heritage that needs to be restituted. Right. The issue of the moving image is so huge, so vast, so scattered, that so much work needs to be done about it so mm-hmm. accordingly, we will not make it part of this report. But by doing so, because mm-hmm. there was so much to do about the museums and the icons, it did not exclude the moving image from that conversation, but okay. it just put it aside. And obviously, by putting it aside, people are dismissing it as though, oh, no, it's not. Yes, it is. The moving image is part of our heritage. It's part Mm -hmm. of the icons that we need to engage with and we need to re-inhabit, appropriate, re-dialogue, choose whichever, translate even. And that is what our program is actually about. Mm -hmm. The People's Stories, which starts um, in in January next year Mm -hmm. in Senegal, we have 14 renowned African Arab artists who will mm-hmm. sit with the archive and translate, interpret, critique, do installations, make films, do whatever oh, they wow. want to do. Oh, wow. That's be But somehow reappropriate, somehow start a conversation with it. And right. we're doing this with, luckily, the German uh, Kulturstiftung des Bundes engaged with us very in a major way, but obviously we're just a drop in the bucket. To go back to what you were saying about luckily there's NARA, what we have to recognize Mm -hmm. is that each one of our countries, our archives are dying. Yes, that's the issue of preservation. The state Mm -hmm. they are in, 
And if I have one call, actually, I have no problem being a beggar on this front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this entire program in Senegal, and there isn't even a scanner to digitize oh. these programs. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. And to get a scanner costs like a hundred thousand euros. That can't mm-hmm. be part of our program. The people who have the archives don't mean to do it. So what do we do? Do we just leave our archives to be to die? That seems to be like one of the hard choices. Is do you have the means to preserve, but then also getting them the means to preserve because there's also this question of like, I mean, what we were talking about, who owns those archives? That's mm-hmm. another fallacy. The mm-hmm. whole issue of owning the archive, the whole copyright issue of the archive comes out of the Berne Convention, which was mm-hmm. changed in 1978. Mm-hmm. And so all the money we're paying, the copyright we're paying, even public domain footage we get to pay. When Mm -hmm. AP sells you public domain, sorry, not just AP, when any of the majors Mm -hmm. sell you public domain footage, they still get you to pay like a thousand because they've preserved it and they've worked on it. Mm -hmm. But it's public domain. Why did this happen? Because there was a decision to change the copyright based on the archive in the Berne Convention. My Mm -hmm. question is, why do we not go back to the Berne Convention and say all these countries that did not have a say, that do not have an, uh, uh, do not have access to their own country's archives, they Mm -hmm. need access to it and copyright of the majors to make money out of it should be dropped when a citizen or somebody of that country, of that space, needs to engage needs it. with their yeah, own exactly. And that's exactly. what Liberate the Image right. is about. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. saying don't do it as a commercial endeavor, but do not do it as a commercial endeavor on our backs yet again. I probably should use a better word than own. I probably meant to say, like, who, oh, who. Well, I'm going to use another word. <laughs> um Controls, and when I say controls, I mean who is the one who is responsible, responsibility for disseminating that that information when it's requested. But what Mm -hmm. stops? I'll give you a very small example. Okay. Okay. I did Mm -hmm. this film called Cuba's African Odyssey. The first section was in the Congo, and I I needed footage of Lumumba Mm -hmm. when he Mm -hmm. was taken to his death, and I found it. I paid God knows how much for it. And the next thing I find it in Belgium. And then I find it in America. Yeah, yeah. look at it for a couple different places. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. I find it here. And then suddenly all these, what I would call colonial archives, all of them have copies of it. Yet there wasn't one copy of it in the Congo. Every single bit of our footage should be shared with us. Right. Now, who Mm -hmm. owns it is whoever wants to tell that story that Mm -hmm. has a right to be trying to engage with that story. Actually, I don't need that. Has the right isn't even the right word. Mm -hmm. These stories need to be engaged with. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about decolonization, and Mm -hmm. it's a fancy word out there nowadays. Yeah, decolonizing docs, that's... Decolonize, well, that's where it starts. Let us Mm -hmm. use our footage let us think together let's do this and stop making us pay 
to even see what it is we need to decolonize. So yes. I have absolutely no sympathy mm-hmm. for words like ownership, copyright, mm-hmm. all of this. We mm-hmm. need archives. I'm not saying that archives do not. I used to pay between five, six hundred euros uh, for footage. I don't right. mind paying three, four, five hundred euros for footage. Mm-hmm. A of footage. I think buying that minute of footage and everybody like me buying it for that amount is more than enough to preserve right. that footage and to pay the person who is doing that. Now, mm-hmm. if it is again on us to fill the pockets of the people, that is right. not what we're supposed to do. That is not what we should be accepting to do. Because I mean, sometimes in um, U.S. documentaries, I'm going to like refer to civil, like documentaries on the the civil rights movement here in, in the U.S. You'll see documentary after documentary that has the same footage. You know, like each one of those filmmakers has paid a lot of money for for that footage. But also, there is a lot of there are, are a lot of items that aren't digitized, and I think I mentioned this before. Yes. So you'll you'll get a shot list, but then they make they want to make the filmmaker pay to digitize. But that, I think even that's half that, of my documentaries. Yeah. I was like. What does this mean? What is in there? It says, no, it's not interesting for us. You want to see it, digitize it. So the amount of footage I've had to pay to digitize, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I was I was saying, now we need a scanner and we can't right. even pay for it. My last film, mm-hmm. I paid more than 600,000 euros. It was a three-part series. Mm-hmm. 600,000 euros to I believe archives. It just to make my film and an entire country cannot get 100,000 euros to get a scanner to save their archives. Mm-hmm. I think this is unacceptable. I'm pretty oh, sure all the majors are going to hate me and never want to sell anything to me and I'll be blocked out of this world and end up like Rosa Parks with, with a tax return that uh, <laughs> has diminished uh, considerably. But I don't care. I think that mm-hmm. we are at a... We are at a turning point. If now is not the time to say this is an important conversation that needs to start happening. I was in the Senegalese archive. They Mm -hmm. had 5,000 reels. Mm. We're down to 250. Because it's just disintegrated. Just because... I mean, the the, the reason I'm desperately trying to find the money to get this... um, uh, is 700 of them are still savable. Right. 700 of the 5,000. Right. Mm-hmm. But we need the machines. We need the machines to do it. Now, yeah. who, now, if I ask any of the majors, if I ask any of the institutions, if I ask any of this, this and that, it doesn't fill, I, I, can, I do not tick the boxes. Mm-hmm. But then what mm-hmm. do you do? You sit there and say, okay, our heritage has dwindled to 200 and that's that. And in a couple of years, and do you know how much of the 200 are digitized? Four. It's a huge challenge. And if right. it's the last thing I do in my breathing mm-hmm. days, this is going to change at least for whatever. The, luckily in, in Morocco, they had the exact same problem. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the battle they had internally to be able to shift a lot of the money towards mm-hmm. the archive meant that it impacted their filmmaking okay right because, exactly you know 
the, mm-hmm. the amount of money available for the sector is limited. We come right. from countries that do not have the means. So what are some of the things that we can do as those of us who recognize the need for archive? What are some things we can do to help and to assist some of the countries to like get the equipment they, they need to make the, this happen? I don't know, maybe call one of the uh, archive ma- uh, machine manufacturers, the scanner say, hey, manufacturers. Tell them, can you please give a donation to this country? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or this university, because I've actually sorted mm-hmm. out a deal for someone to train the on digitizing, on preservation. But without the machines, what do we do? Yeah, that's another issue too, because like sometimes you, people will send items to universities, but, but a lot of universities, universities don't have the, the money or the resources. But you see, then we get into another hitch. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and again, I'm going to underline that it's not about where people come from. It's mm-hmm. just about the gaze. We need to shift yes. the gaze. gaze. Got okay? it. And Mm -hmm. it's not against anybody and it's not for anybody. It's just what needs to happen at this stage. Now, obviously, what happens is that we'll get expert European, expert American, who are wonderful people who are this. But again, the gaze, the gaze that you cannot ask them not to have that gaze, you know, (laughs) that's who who they are and where they come from. So you hire these people who Mm -hmm. are doing their best but then you're not doing that job. So we need to, to train local train archive, archive yes. researchers. Mm-hmm. We need to have mentors of people who come from a space where not to teach, the word teach, we do not need to teach anybody anything. Mm-hmm. We need to mm-hmm. exchange. We need to put questions on the table. We need to have them ask the questions and we try to assist them on where to find the answers. Allow them to trial and error. We need, there's so much to be done. And if you get me on and on about this, we're never going to end this conversation. Okay, I know. We do need to wrap up. But I just I'm always like at the end of the podcast, just to ask our guests if they have any last bit of words of wisdom they like to, um, or, or even like a call to action, which you've like already outlined like several. But yeah, so do you have any last words? Yes, I have mm-hmm. a very clear call to action called yes. liberate the image. Mm-hmm. We can only see each other eye to eye if our images represent us, yes. not represent what somebody else wants to see us as being. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Jihan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I actually absolutely do want to continue this conversation where we can kind of get deeper into this manifesto. You'll be more like, than welcome on, on, on board a, our ship. We need okay. to have that conversation. Yes, uh, <laughs> on, a, on another episode because yes. I, like you, I could talk about archive like all day. Um, but thank you so much for um, being a part of this, being our uh being a part of our second year. I do have to also underline something. Um, uh, Doc Leipzig is one of our partners on this archive program. We are extremely, you know, 
what Doc Leipzig has been doing for documentary and now even more so. And so we were really, really thrilled that they're coming on board as partners. We don't know in what shape or form, but that is what the conversation is about. Where we can hold hands and move along together. We'd like to thank the folks at Doc Leipzig who worked so hard to make this partnership happen. Shout outs to Nadia Tinstant and Anne Redfeld, who is now with Documentary Association of Europe. I'd like to offer a special thanks to Jihan. I got started working in docs over 10 years ago in the archival space. This conversation with Jihan was enlightening and illuminating. I also really appreciated how Jihan actively challenged me to question some of the languaging around archives that is still rooted in Western practices. I'm also so looking forward to having her back on the show and seeing what she does next. In our next episode, we will head across the pond to Germany as I chat with one of the co-founders of the Documentary Association of Europe, Marian Schmidt. Visit the website to check out her bio. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Ronell Schubert and the team at Doc Leipzig. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.